Welcome to Conversations Over Coffee, where we're brewing inspiring discussions on the Philippine startup ecosystem with those who are making things happen. I'm your host, Bitsantas from Kickstart Ventures. Join me in every episode as we sit down with key figures in the startup community as we explore their successes and challenges and how we can work together to shape the future. Hey, Jason. Hey, Bit. How's it going? Okay, just to get us started, how about you tell us how you got started, right? Tell us about yourself, your background, how did you get started in your career, and what pushed you onto this path of VC? Well, but I grew up in the Philippines. I went to grade school and high school here, but eventually went to go study in the States, New York. And where I ended up studying accounting in college, actually, mostly because my parents told me it was a stable job and always be able to have a job, but also because it was the language of business. So I tried really hard, actually, to try and get a job in one of the big four firms but actually never ended up doing any actual accounting. Somehow, instead, my roommate convinced me to apply to an internship at uh, one of the big banks uh, over there, UBS, and somehow I got accepted and started doing equity research at UBS. (laughs) Looking back, I was pretty bad at it, actually. I don't think I helped at all. But what it really did was help open my eyes to the world of finance. And from there, I didn't really look back. I read a ton of books, started to do paper trading, which eventually transitioned to you know, trading my own personal account. I joined the school's investment club, all that you know, Wall Street Oasis jazz. And I wanted to be the next Warren Buffett, Peter Lynch. Ultimately, when I graduated, I ended up getting a job at an you know, investment bank in New York, BNP Paribas, which is a French bank where I was working on the trading floor. It's a little different from what an investment bank kind of might look like. But there, I was covering risk and trading for some of the hedge funds and other institutional asset managers and investors that we serviced. It was a really interesting job. Uh, learned a lot about financial markets, uh, different investing and hedge fund strategies. And this background ended up serving me well later on. I will admit it was a tough job uh, at the time. But after about three years of doing that, I was feeling a bit burnt out and wanted to new change of pace. So I decided to leave and move back home to the Philippines to recharge and figure out my next steps. As I was living back home, as all eldest sons do in Asia, I ended up working for family business. My mom runs currently a local cabinet manufacturing company, while my dad manages a small investment fund here. I was working for them simultaneously. I got started learning how to invest, trying to live out my dream to be Peter Lynch and manage funds. And this is where I got my first exposure to investing. We run a long, short, multi-strategy equity fund. So we invested in you know range of different things from consumer businesses, grocery retail, energy, semiconductors, even distressed oil bonds. Also, the strategy leaned to things like growth investing. And this is where I got my start at tech investing, looking at, you know, U.S. marketplaces, tech companies in Europe, and even making some investments in some of the big China tech companies. So, you know, this really helped form the foundation for my investment background. But simultaneously, I was also helping my mom modernize her cabinet company. It's a 20-year-old cabinetry company, hasn't really evolved since then. But some new changes, there was an opportunity to improve operations and to make it much more efficient. So it started from basic stuff, from getting website done to automating pricing and quotation to reorganizing how we did inventory, sales, and incentivizing employees. 
So eventually, one of my projects was to get an ERP in place for my mom's business. This ultimately needed a custom job, which helped introduce me to some local developers, one of whom actually invited me to Kickstarts Read the Fridge. And it was really interesting. I saw Ron Hosa talk about the startup ecosystem in the Philippines, and it hooked me. I was very impressed by how much the country had evolved, and I wanted to get to know more. Once I'd down down my commitments to my family, I decided that I wanted to be involved in Philippine startups. And that's how ultimately I found my way to Kickstart. It's been nearly four years since I joined, you know, on the investment team at Kickstart. And it's honestly been a blast to see how quickly the ecosystem has grown. From 2019 to today, I've had the privilege of investing in early stage Philippine companies that ended up becoming some of the iconic startups, Pickup Coffee, Kumu, Edamama, among our portfolio. In the four years that you've been with Kickstart, God knows how many startups you've seen, you know, how many pitches, how many cap tables. What do you look for and what do you consider when you're looking at cap table? Yeah, as part of our job at Kickstart, we have to look at many different aspects of a company. And one of them is uh, what's called a cap table or capitalization table. All it is simply is, is a statement of ownership, signifying how much each uh, stakeholder owns as a representative share or stake in the company or economic stake in the company. But cap tables by themselves, they don't convey the potential of a startup. However, you know, as mentioned, it is one of the key things that we look at. The reason being is that cap tables are like the foundation for a house. Not a super great analogy, but when you think about it, this well-constructed base helps you set up for success, allowing you to build walls, fit it out with furniture and so on. So what we look for in short is uh, we're looking for, especially early stage investors like us ourselves, we're looking for what's called a clean cap table. And what does this mean? Really, it means that there is the appropriate balance of founder and investor interest at appropriate stages of the company. So let's say at an early stage company, let's say seed or series A, we're looking for high level of key man ownership. This is how much do co-founders own of the company? And we ask ourselves, will this be enough to ride out dilution from multiple rounds of fundraising? Obviously, there are times where you need to do more or need to do less. But we want to ensure that the primary people who are responsible for the success of the company remain incentivized and motivated throughout the entire journey of a startup's lifespan. And is this appropriately distributed between various co-founders, employees, and the rest of key management? The second thing to balance against founder ownership is investor ownership. One thing that we like to see is group of investors whose interests are strictly aligned with the companies. And what this means is that you want investors who bring value to the company, whether through their network, relevant advice, uh, introductions to commercial partners, but like the ownership of the founder and key employees, we want to see that the investors sitting across the table or around the table remain motivated to see the company succeed. So you also probably want to avoid bringing on board too many investors too quickly. Part of this is because in the earlier rounds, you want investors 
who are deeply, deeply vested in seeing you succeed and diluting that interest too much across too many investors too soon can water down that motivation. It can also hamper decision-making speed when, as an early-stage startup, speed is one of your primary advantages. This also causes this phenomenon of perhaps shifting the burden of decision-making, taking charge, and keeping the startup company accountable for some of the growth milestones that they need to achieve. Some benchmarks uh, when looking at the cap table, at the earlier stages, you want founders to continue to own majority of the company. So you expect for each round of funding to get diluted between 15 to 25 to 30% at the early stages. So within your first round of funding, so let's say by seed stage or post-seed stage, the management team should own roughly about 80% of the company with the investors owning the balance. By the A, about 60%, and so on and so forth. However, the theme here is really to see aligned incentive across the company and that the cap table is balanced between founders, investors, and employees. So I was thinking about this when, you know, when we were preparing for this conversation. And one of the things, obviously there's there's a very technical side to it, but I was also thinking about, you know, we always say that investing into a company is basically like going into a marriage. Thinking about the cap table and, you know, the analogy there is kind of like when you look into a cap table, you're looking at the family that you're marrying into. <laughs> right? You can imagine marrying into a family where, you know, when you look when you realize that your fiance's family is like this huge family and like every family affair is such a a mess, <laughs> right? If there are like so many people involved, I mean, it's kind of similar with a with a messy cap table, right? Mm. At the same time, it's also, you know, if you have a family member who is not aligned with the rest of the family and is kind of always throwing a wrench into the family's plans, it's it's very similar. It's like when you go over for Christmas, you want to be excited to see the the family that you married into, your mother in law, your brother in law, uh, sister in law, whoever, and you want to be able to make sure that you can decide what movie you want to put on <laughs> while you wait for dinner to be prepared. So I feel like cap tables and valuations are kind of two sides of the same coin, or maybe even like one way I, I imagine it is it's it's two components of the same vector. So, you know, once someone has kind of figured out how to put together or assemble their cap table. You know, how should a founder now start thinking about valuation, right? Especially in, you know, a startup by by definition, it's an early stage company. You know, how should they start thinking about it when there may not be so many concrete basis for it as compared to what you would have with a more mature company? Right. So I'll tackle that in two parts. So cap tables are an extremely important consideration as you go into the next funding round, right? Basically, you want to always consider what that architecture of your cap table looks like as the fundraise closes out. And then you have to game it a little bit, game it forward a little bit to see what does that look like the next round? What if I take non-dilutive financing? 
whether it be grants, a term loan, you slow down operational burn to lengthen your runway as you achieve growth. It's a key factor to consider. So it's always important to keep that in mind as you go into that valuation conversation. Let's say you are a fully bootstrapped company on 100% of this round. You are raising your seed round to help you get to product market fit. You engage with a investor to lead that round. That investor is looking to get, let's say, 20% of the company post money, post the transaction. Valuation will dictate, ultimately, let's say you're a seed, in, uh, seed company looking to raise its seed round. Let's say you're a bootstrap company, bootstrapped company looking to raise its first institutional seed round. And you are looking to raise $2 million to help you get to that next stage. Achieving higher valuation will minimize that dilution. So if that investor believes that you're valued at a higher amount, let's say $8 million pre-money for a $10 million post, that leaves you, after the investment, 80% left to play around with. And that gives you enough equity as a founder to manage future rounds of dilution as you continue to raise subsequent funding rounds. If, let's say, that investor says, I want instead, you know, for the sake of argument, $3 million pre-money valuation for a $5 million post, that $2 million gets that investor 40%, leaving 60% for you. In effect, you're one round short for that future round. So instead of having 80%, you have 60% left to play around with. And that can have cascading effects for yourselves as founders at your exit. That leaves you less to work with. But it also can deter investors in the future, Series A investors, just because there's been too much equity given away up front. So you want to manage that balance. So you are incentivized as a founder to maximize the valuation for that particular round. However, these days, valuation is, is getting a lot more scrutiny after the kind of the go-go days of 2020 and 2021, where multiples were uh, going crazy. So that said, founders nowadays should be cognizant that valuations right now are just valuation multiples in particular are just not what they used to be. So you have to start to get realistic about the valuations that you're getting today. Why valuation is important in managing that cap table. However, nowadays, given the environment, founders should be cognizant of what valuations are like. So from the heady days of 2021 and maybe even early 2022, at least in, in our part of the world, right? Things are still quite good in early 2022. Like what has changed? Like well, what has changed and how should founders adapt to that new reality? You know, what's changed, right? So much of valuation globally is driven by U.S., right? The U.S. interest rates. We take so much, we take so many cues from 
like interest rates in the US and that ends up cascading down into interest rates for all asset managers globally. Why is that? Well, it's because it simply benchmarks the requisite return that we as fund managers have to generate to effectively justify the investment, right? So that is kind of the impetus for change. There are many reasons why interest rates have increased, but that's the fundamental reason why valuation has compressed globally. When you look at valuation multiples for tech companies in particular, high-growth, non-profitable companies, you see multiples for fintech companies, which used to be in the 10 to 30x multiples now, back in the heydays, are now 50-80% decline from those periods. Nowadays, when we look at fintech comps, your EV to sales multiples are closer to 2 to 10x uh, or 2 to 8x than 10 to 30x from before. And we've seen many times higher. So the investment landscape has changed. The demand for return has, the hurdle for return has increased, thereby requiring entry point valuations to compress. So when you think about it, right, you could justify a 10% annual return as an investment, as, again, as a, as, as a case point, case study. And let's say you exit at a billion dollars. I'm making up the math, but you could probably justify an investment at $100 million or let's say you know 10x your revenues. Now, that expectation has changed and the required rate of return is no longer 10%, but maybe 15%. And that means that the entry point valuation is no longer $100 million, but maybe 50 or 30 million. And for the same exit that you're going to get, just because the benchmark has increased. So that is the landscape that companies are facing today and why valuation multiples, particularly in the US and Europe, have compressed dramatically. Acknowledge that in Southeast Asia, there's been a little bit of a slow reaction to that. I think sometimes when we meet companies that are pitching to us, their valuation expectations are still tied to the previous world, our previous era valuation multiples. However, that's just not the case anymore. Would it be fair to say that it's kind of a dirty little secret, or maybe it's like it's not something that's so obvious, that as investors of startups may be a little more sensitive to the movements of the market, not because there's a direct impact to us, but rather because a large basis for startup valuations is really what is in the market. I mean, I'd say that's true. Like valuation, it is not a science. In reality, valuation is whatever the market prices you at today. You have companies as big and as big as Stripe write itself down from $90 billion to $50 billion. And that's Stripe. You are at some point always going to be pegged or benchmarked against whatever exit multiple that you will be getting out at. And, you know, just to how we as investors think about it is we work backwards from what that exit value might look like. If we believe, for example, that you might IPO as a company, uh, the valuation of IPO companies or pre-IPO companies are 
almost as close to what public market multiples might look like already today. And the closer and more mature that you get, the more those valuation multiples will start to apply to companies. But as we game these out for future growth and what our returns have to look like, the greatest benchmark would be what the markets are looking at like today. And you have to be able to justify an investment, assuming, again, that heightened rate of return using that as a benchmark and then backing into that valuation today, assuming you play out how many rounds of capital and funding that you might need to achieve that end state. So at the end of the day, a startup valuation is basically an assertion, right? It's an assertion of the founder, of maybe of its of its investors, of that of that whole team coming to this determination that this is what we're valued based on a number of things, right? To your point, it's considering trying to game out their path forward, but also considering what's out in the market, right? So how how should how does that happen? How should they actually be thinking about that? How do they marry what they think and what the market thinks? Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's like what determines the price of a banana? It's really supply and demand, right? There are various negotiating factors that come into play, right? Do you have enough capital? Do you not need this fundraise, right? The more distressed or more in need you are of funding, the less negotiation leverage that you would have coming into evaluation discussion. The better you perform, the more you can justify a premium because as you game that out, the faster you grow, it might mean that you need less capital to, to achieve the same outcome or you would be able to achieve it faster. And it's these factors, right? So how are you performing? Are you able to achieve a larger outcome than we can game out and convincingly convey to us as investors that your exit trajectory is much bigger than what we imagine ourselves. And if you can do that convincingly, you can continue to nudge up what that valuation might look like today. So some of the factors that we look at as investors to evaluate how investable a company is really comes down to what is that ceiling and how fast the trajectory of that company is to achieving that. There are many other things that come into play, but when I boil it down into how big the opportunity is and how big it can get, these are two of the key factors. Many other things come into play that support our belief in those things. The strength of the team, founder market fit, the lack of competition, the differentiation of your product and customer love and all these things. Right. At the the end of the day, it is all about what is the ceiling of a company and how close can they get to that ceiling, right? It's not necessarily, you know, a company has to get to that ceiling for them to fully realize their potential and for investors to be to be interested. But it's, it's that determination. It's it's their trajectory and what are the reasons that you give us investors to believe that you're going to get there. Yeah, absolutely. So it may be it may be past performance, right? Always that's always like one of the biggest ones. It's past performance. 
But all of these other factors come in as proof points, right? It is the strength of the team, it's your past experience, it's the market, right? And their knowledge of the market, right? It's, it's all of these things. Yeah. Uh, like, as you mentioned, a lot of it has to do with painting a picture of what the future looks like and making it as concrete and credible as you possibly can with whatever information that you have today. There are founders that we've backed who've had two or three months of operations. And it's all about building that credibility. And that credibility comes from, as you mentioned, past performance, our understanding and comfort of the market, how amazing your product is. And all of these things give us the confidence to describe a certain valuation to you, right? So when we look at valuation ranges, we look at a low end and a high end based on what's available out there today, giving certain premiums to how credible that future is based on what you show us, based on the things that we believe to be true. And that allows you as a company to be able to justify a higher valuation. So when thinking about the journey of a company, right? We, as investors, we think about, you know, what is its ceiling? What does the end of this journey look like, right? And you could think about the valuation as not just as an assertion of, you know, what this is what we believe the company is worth now. But another way to look at it is it's an assertion of this is how far along we are in the journey. Right? This is how far along we are. This is how far away we are from that journey. Um, obviously, startup paths aren't linear and that's not what we look for. But if, for example, we think that our company will eventually be worth just $100, we say, our company now is worth $20. You're essentially telling us that you're about just one-fifth of the journey, right? And then we would take all of these signals that we we can see, like, is that the truth? Is that, do we believe that, right? Right. I, I think that's true. The, the other thing to note is valuation is, in many cases, can be disconnected from reality, right? Like Warren Buffett said, the market short-term is a popularity contest, but long-term is a weighing scale. So there are moments where valuation can diverge from reality, either positively or negatively. So valuations can be a good signal for investors to see momentum or for outside investors and outside parties to look at momentum. And it's because private markets can be very opaque that sometimes these are just the only data points that we can use to derive that signal from. But the real measure of a company is really how well that business is doing, what impact and contribution it makes to its stakeholders and investors, its users, and so on, right? So that can be measured in multitude of ways. Users, revenue, EBITDA, uh, shareholder return, net positive value. So valuation helps. It's an aspect, and it's something to always keep in mind just because you are, again, architecting this end state outcome for yourself as founders, as investors. But 
it's not the only determinant of the worth of a company. Again, there's a distinction between value and worth. Um, value is a point in time mark that a company might have at any given moment. But the worth of that company could be far greater, especially in the long term, with the right partners, the right investors, the right team to make that future happen. So in the four years that you've been with Kickstart and you know the four years that you've been looking at startup pitches, you know what are some of the common red flags and warning signs that you've come across um, in cap tables and with regards to valuation? Okay, that's a that's a good question, and there are a couple, right? I think the first, and I'll start, I'll start tackling through kind of the cap table side because it's a common enough occurrence. Again, it's important to let in the right partners in your cap table, and it's important to to keep a cap table that continues to be fundable over time. And there are ways to fix, let's say, a cap table that is too heavily weighted to certain investors or to investors in general, or to have uh, equity that that is non-productive or, or dead equity in the cap table. But it is expensive and a very painful process. And it requires the wherewithal from investors, uh, from the founders to do so. So, you know, to, to recap, like, like the, what I look out for in a cap table that can be some warning signs are, one, an imbalanced cap table, meaning for the stage of the company, there's too much in favor of investors or too much unproductive equity. That's one. Two, and this is another thing to keep in mind out, to keep a watch out for, especially for founders, is understanding the impact of certain convertible instruments that don't accurately display or demonstrate how much found how much equity that you have at any given moment. These are effectively contingent instruments convertible notes, warrants, options, grants that convert upon a certain deal closing that dilute the company. And it's important to, as a founder, as you sign all these agreements to actually read the documents and to play out what it could look like under certain scenarios. Again, convertible notes are are floating instruments. You don't really know what it looks like until a funding round comes in, but it's far too often an occurrence where founders are surprised how much they get diluted by the notes that they took in prior to a round closing. So a thorough understanding of that, mathing it out and seeing, yes, okay, if I hit my cap or exceed it, it my equity, I would only be diluted 20%. But in cases where the valuation at that next round doesn't meet that threshold, it could be severely dilutive. And that's always something I watch out for. And one of the reasons why it is wise to avoid stacking multiple convertible notes as funding rounds. So in you know other things that I look out for in cap tables are, again, aligned investors. I want to make sure that the investors that are in the cap table are people that we can work with, as you mentioned, uh, mothers-in-law, fathers-in-law, brothers-in-law, that you can you know, stand being at Christmas at the Christmas table together with and who can be reasonable as you potentially would be working together on the same board and might have to make some 
tough decisions. And you want to be able to make sure that you can both or you and along with the other investors and the founder can make the right decisions for uh, that company going forward. So cap table. I think last thing I'd like to say about uh, valuation and some red flags there is, again, in, in this particular environment, to be a very, to be a realist, right? Sometimes you have to take a deal that is perhaps a little bit more dilutive than you'd like. Um, valuations are not any longer what they used to be. And you have to ask yourself, will that capital now be more helpful than trying to delay that conversation to the future? And perhaps cutting it close by playing that difficult valuation game. I think the other thing is, um, in terms of valuation, is so valuation is this set of assumptions, right, about the future and what that could look like. A high valuation can be a double edged sword. Too high a valuation sets up a lot of expectations for yourself, right? So perhaps multiples don't change. That expectation now for that valuation means that you have to grow faster to meet the valuation that you last raised at. By being reasonable with valuation, and perhaps I say this a little self-centeredly uh, like as, as an investor, but by re being reasonable with that valuation, you're able to lower that bar for expectations. There's this episode in Silicon Valley, uh, the show by HBO, great show, love it, hilarious, that there's an episode where one of the associates at the VC warns the founder of Pied Piper, which is the you know main startup in the show, to take actually a lower valuation because, again, you properly set yourself up and expectations for future rounds of investors to come in. Like you said earlier, valuation is a signal. And with the market being like it is, which is very opaque, it sometimes can be one of the few signals that investors can look at. So being able to progressively increase valuation can be a good signal for investors and for future companies. Don't set yourself up for failure by pegging yourself at a valuation that is too high. What is more important is bringing on the right kind of capital, the right kind of partners into your cap table whether that valuation might be a little bit more dilutive to you than some higher valuation term sheet that might not be as value add. You know, so as a VC, we, we operate in the realm of ideas and concepts of the future, right? So of the many things that you see and, and have read about, like what's one uh, idea or concept of the future that has captured your imagination recently? I have to say, I'd love a Gundam. So if any <laughs> builders are out there looking to make one, sign me up. But realistically, um, I think one thing that I find more and more exciting is um, VR, virtual reality. And it's a little out of favor right now, I think. But if you've seen videos of the Vision Pro, unfortunately, I haven't had the pleasure of being able to try one of these. But from the reviews I've seen, it's super interesting how the interface has changed so dramatically instead of being able to speak or wave your hands to interact with something. It tracks your eyes to select things and it makes it much faster to interact with the virtual world. And it's these new interactivities and modalities of like how we can be more connected. And that sometimes that's a little 
maybe not desirable. Maybe it's a little too ready player one. But I think what that could do is really accelerate personally. Like I'd love like super cool video games. Uh, I think the technology is starting to really get there. The price point is still uh, far away for Apple Vision Pro to get mainstream adoption. But if you look at Steam VR users, it's more than 1% of the player base has a VR headset. And I am excited for what more interactivity could look like. Metaverse or not, video games operating a Gundam. I think a lot of these start to become possible when these new technologies start to get introduced. All right. Thank you very much, Jason. It's always a pleasure having a conversation with you. I feel like I always learn something new. I always pick up something, um, whether it be you know something completely new to me or just a new perspective. So, Likewise, Bit. Happy to be here. A little stressful, but there you go. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I'll see you around. Thanks for joining us. Follow Kickstart Ventures on Facebook and LinkedIn to know who we're featuring next.